1, Chapter 7 of The Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mermaid by Lily Duggle, Chapter 7, A Sea Change. In the procession of the swift-winged hours, there is for every man one and another which is big with fate, in that they bring him peculiar opportunity to lose his life, and by that means find it. Such an hour came now to Caius. The losing and finding of life is accomplished in many ways. The first proffer of this kind which time makes to us is commonly a draught of the wine of joy, and happy is he who loses the remembrance of self therein. The hour which was so fateful for Caius came flying with the light winds of August, which breathed over the sunny harvest fields and under the deep dark shades of woods of fir and beech, waving the gray moss that hung from trunk and branch, tossing the emerald ferns that grew in the moss at the roots, and out again into light to catch the silver down of thistles that grew by the red roadside and rustled their purple blooms. Then on the cliff, just touching the blue sea with the slightest ripple, and losing themselves where sky and ocean met in indistinguishable azure fold. Through the woods walked Caius, and onward to the shore. Nettie Morrison was dead. The little child who was lost in the sea was almost forgotten. Caius, thinking upon these things, thought also upon the transient nature of all things, but he did not think profoundly or long. In his earlier youth he had been a good deal given to meditation, a habit which is frequently a mere sign of mental fallowness. Now that his mind was wearied with the accumulation of a little learning, it knew what work meant, and did not work except when compelled. Caius walked upon the red road bordered by fir hedges and weeds, amongst which blue and yellow asters were beginning to blow, and the ashen seeds of the flame flower were seen, for its flame was blown out. Caius was walking for the sake of walking and in pure idleness, but when he came near Farmer Day's land, he had no thought of passing it without pausing to rest his eyes for a time upon the familiar details of that part of the shore. He scrambled down the face of the cliff, for it was as yet some hours before the tide would be full. A glance showed him that the stone of Baby Day's tablet held yet firm, cemented in the niche of a soft rock. A glance was enough for an object for which he had little respect, and he sat down with his back to it on one of the smaller rocks of the beach. This was the only place on the shore where the sandstone was hard enough to retain the form of rock, and the rock ended in the small, sharp headland which, when he was down at the water's level, hid the neighboring bay entirely from his sight. The incoming tide had no swift, unexpected current as the outgoing water had. There was not much movement in the little channel upon which Caius was keeping watch. The summer afternoon was all aglow upon shore and sea. He had sat quite still for a good while, when, near the sunny island, just at the point where he had been pulled ashore on the adventurous night when he risked his life for the child, he suddenly observed what appeared to be a curious animal in the water. There was a glistening as of a scaly brownish body, which lay near the surface of the waves. Was it a porpoise that had ventured so near? Was it a dog swimming? No, he knew well that neither the one nor the other had any such habit as this lazy basking in sunny shallows. Then the head that was lying backwards on the water turned towards him, and he saw a human face. Surely, surely it was human, and a snow-white arm was lifted out of the water as if to play a while in the warm air. The eyes of the wonderful thing were turned toward him, and it seemed to chance to see him now for the first time, for there was a sudden movement, no jerk or splash, 
but a fish-like dart toward the open sea. Then came another turn of the head, as if to make sure that he was indeed the man that he seemed, and then the sea maid went under the surface, and the ripples that she left behind subsided slowly, expanding and fading, as ripples in calm waters do. Caius stood up, watching the empty surface of the sea. If some compelling fate had said to him, There shalt thou stand and gaze, he could not have stood more absolutely still, nor gazed more intently. The spell lasted long, some three or four minutes he stood, watching the place with almost unwinking eyes, like one turned to stone, and within him his mind was searching, searching, to find out, if he might, what thing this could possibly be. He did not suppose that she would come back. Nettie Morrison had implied that the condition of her appearing was that she should not know that she was seen. It was three years since the old man had seen the same apparition. How much might three years stand for in the life of a mermaid? Then, when such questioning seemed most futile, and the spell that held Caius was losing its hold, there was a rippling of the calm surface that gave him a wild, half-fearful hope. As gently as it had disappeared, the head rose again, not lying backward now, but, with pretty turn of the white neck, holding itself erect. An instant she was still, and then the perfect arm, which he had seen before, was again raised in the air, and this time it beckoned to him. Once, twice, thrice he saw the imperative beck of the little hand. Then it rested again upon the rippled surface, and the sea maid waited, as though secure of his obedience. The man's startled ideas began to right themselves. Was it possible that any woman could be bathing from the island and have the audacity to ask him to share her sport? He tarried so long that the nymph, or whatever it might be, came nearer. Some twelve feet or so of the water she swiftly glided through, as it seemed, without twist or turn of her body or effort, then paused, then came forward again until she had rounded the island at its nearest point, and halfway between it and the shore she stopped and looked at him steadily with a face that seemed to Caius singularly womanly and sweet. Again she lifted a white hand and beckoned him to come across the space of water that remained. Caius stood doubtful upon his rock. After a minute he set his feet more firmly upon it, and crossed his arms to indicate that he had no intention of swimming the narrow sea in answer to the beckoning hand. Yet his whole mind was thrown into confusion with the strangeness of it. He thought he heard a woman's laughter come across to him with the lapping waves, and his face flushed with the indignity this offered. The mermaid left her distance, and by a series of short darts came nearer still, till she stopped again about the width of a broad high road from the discomforted man. He knew now that it must be truly a mermaid, for no creature but a fish could thus glide along the surface of the water, and certainly the sleek, damp little head that lay so comfortably on the ripple was the head of a laughing child or playing girl. A crown of green seaweed was on the dripping curls, the arms playing idly upon the surface were round, dimpled, and exquisitely white. The dark brownish body he could hardly now see. It was foreshortened to his sight, down slanting deep under the disturbed surface. If it had not been for the indisputable evidence of his senses that this lovely sea thing swam, not with arms or feet, but with some snake-like motion, he might still have tried to persuade himself that some playful girl, strange to the ways of the neighborhood, was disporting herself at her bath. It was of no avail that his reason told him that he did not, could not, believe that such a creature as a mermaid could exist. The big dark eyes of the girlish face opened wide and looked at him, the dimpled mouth smiled, and the little white hand came out from the water and beckoned to him again. He was suffering from no delirium. He had not lost his wits. 
He stamped his foot to make sure that the rock was beneath him. He turned about on it to rest his eyes from the water sparkles, and to recall all sober, serious thought by gazing at the stable shore. His eyes stayed on the epitaph of the lost child. He remembered soberly all that he knew about this dead child, and then a sudden flash of perception seemed to come to him. This sweet water nymph, on whom for the moment he had turned his back, must be the baby's soul grown to a woman in the water. He turned again, eager not to lose a moment of the maiden's presence, half fearful that she had vanished, but she was there yet, lying still as before. Of course, it was impossible that she should be the sea wraith of the lost child, but then it was wholly impossible that she should be, and there she was, smiling at him, and Caius saw in the dark eyes a likeness to the long-remembered eyes of the child, and thought he still read their human wistfulness and sadness, in spite of the wet dimples and light laughter that bespoke the soulless life of the sea creature. Caius stooped on the rock, putting his hand near the water as he might have done had he been calling to a kitten or a baby. "'Come, my pretty one, come,' he called softly in soothing tones. The eyes of the water nymph blinked at him through wet-fringed lids. "'Come near, I will not hurt you,' urged Caius, helping to do aught but offer blandishment. He patted the rock gently, as if to make it by that means more inviting. "'Come, love, come,' he coaxed. He was used to speak in the same terms of endearment to a colt of which he was fond, but when a look of undoubted derision came over the face of the sea-maiden, he felt suddenly guilty at having spoken thus to a woman. He stood erect again, and his face burned. The sea-girl's face had dimpled all over with fun. Colts and other animals cannot laugh at us, else we might not be so peaceful in our assumption that they never criticize. Caius before this had always supposed himself happy in his little efforts to please children and animals. Now he knew himself to be a blundering idiot, and so far from feeling vexed with the laughing face in the water, he wondered that any other creature had ever permitted his clumsy caresses. Having failed once, he now knew what not to do, but stood uncertain, devouring the beauty of the sprite in the water as greedily as he might with eyes that were not audacious, for in truth he had begun to feel very shy. "'What is your name?' he asked, throwing his voice across the water. The pretty creature raised a hand and pointed at some object behind him. Caius, turning, knew it to be the epitaph. Yes, that was what his own intelligence had told him was the only explanation. Explanation? His reason revolted at the word. There was no explanation of an impossibility. Yet that the mermaid was the lost child he had now little doubt except that he wholly doubted the evidence of his senses, and that there was a mermaid. He nodded to her that he understood her meaning about the name, and she gave him a little wave of her hand as if to say goodbye, and began to recede slowly, gliding backward, only her head seen above the disturbed water. Don't go, called Caius, much urgency in his words. But the slow receding motion continued, and no answer came but another gentle wave of the hand. The hand of Caius stole involuntarily to his lips, and he wafted a kiss across the water. Then suddenly it seemed to him that the cliff had eyes, and that it might be told of him at home and abroad that he was making love to a phantom and had lost his wits. The sea child only tossed her head a little higher out of the water, and again he saw, or fancied he saw, mirth dancing in her eyes. She beckoned to him and turned, moving away, then looked back and beckoned, and darted forward again. And, doing this again and again, she made straight for the open sea. Caius cursed himself that he had not the courage to jump in and swim after her at any cost. But then he could not swim so fast, certainly not in his clothes. 
There was something so wonderfully human about her face, he mused to himself. His mind suggested, as was its wont, too many reasonable objections to the prompt, headlong course which alone would have availed anything. While he stood in breathless uncertainty, the beckoning hand became lost in the blur of sparkling ripples. The head, lower now, looked in the water at a distance as like the muzzle of a seal or dog as like a human head. By chance, as it seemed, a point of the island came between him and the receding creature, and Caius found himself alone. End of chapter 7